Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based champion championship team. I'm Mark Feinsand, executive reporter for MLB.com. Welcome to the Executive Access Podcast. Tim Nering enjoyed an eight-year career as an infielder with the Boston Red Sox, though injuries would prevent him from reaching his full potential, forcing him to retire at the age of 30. A native of Cincinnati, Nering would stay in the game as a scout for his hometown Reds, launching a successful second career in baseball that saw him rise to become the club's director of player development as the Reds produced homegrown stars such as Joey Votto, Johnny Cueto, and Jay Bruce, among others. In 2007, Nairing joined the Yankees as a scout, beginning a run with New York that is now well into its second decade. Nairing was promoted to vice president of baseball operations before the 2016 season and has become one of Brian Cashman's most trusted lieutenants. I sat down with Nairing to discuss his playing career, his take on the old-school versus new-school scouting approach, why one New York baseball columnist referred to him as something of a latter-day stick Michael, and much more. Enjoy this conversation with Yankees Vice President of Baseball Operations, Tim Nairing. Here with Yankees Vice President of Baseball Operations, Tim Nairing. Timmy, thanks for taking some time. Thanks for having me. So, you grew up in Cincinnati, big fan of Pete Rose and the Big Red Machine. Was baseball always your your first love? Yeah, I mean, obviously growing up in Cincinnati and having a chance to watch... uh, that dynamic team um, was amazing. Obviously, Pete Rose was the man, you know, the way he went about it. Um, always uh, admired the Big Red Machine. I mean, I have to be honest, I didn't think that I had the uh, skill set or talents to play in the major leagues, but obviously uh, dreamed of doing that. Uh, went on to Miami of Ohio, got a little bit bigger, stronger, started playing better, and uh, you know, I was lucky enough to be drafted by the Red Sox in the eighth round, and the rest is history. So, so that was it. From from the time you were a kid, that's what you wanted to do. You wanted to be a baseball player. It was just a matter of whether you were going to be able to get there or not. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to be a baseball player, but I was pretty realistic in the fact that uh, I knew that the chances of making it to the major leagues or to sign a professional contract, for that matter, were very slim. So when I decided to go to Miami of Ohio. It was based on academics, knowing that I had to do something in that regard because the chances of playing baseball were slim to none. Uh, would love to do it, but the bottom line is I, I went to school there for the academics, and then, like I said, things started. I started playing better. I got bigger and stronger, which was uh, probably the key. And then, uh, you know, once I, I moved into my junior year, I'm like, I, I'm playing better. I might even have a chance. You know, scouts were starting to talk about 
potentially signing me to a pro contract. So it was, it was interesting. I, I got to that point. I was like, you know what? The next goal, maybe I can sign a pro contract. Maybe I can play in the minor leagues. And the thought of playing in the major leagues at that point still was so far off. You dream about it, but the, the reality was I went to Miami of Ohio for the academics, figuring that I better prepare for the future the right way. So you get drafted in eighth round, 1988. Yep. Debut with the Red Sox a little more than two years later. What's the grind of the minors really like? Uh, what are those two years like for you? Yeah, it was, I think uh, number one, the one thing that I, I, I thought was um, it's a melting pot of people from all over the world. Um, you know, understanding the differences between guys that deal with certain things from the Dominican versus Venezuela, um, different cultures within our United States, uh, the melting pot and, and, and sitting with and learning the backgrounds of the different individuals was probably the, the biggest eye-opening thing for me. Um, the other obviously was, you know, trying to make ends meet out on the road for the first time by yourself. You know, you, you got a place, trying to find a place to live in Elmira, New York. I remember going into town hall and literally plucking something off the wall to find a place to live. And then I took that number, called it, said, how many rooms do you have? It was a gentleman that owned the local hardware store, uh, HERS Hardware, and basically saying, how many guys can you put in your place? And he said, I can take six. So then I went to the ballpark and I found five other guys <laughs> that I never met before and said, listen, I don't know where you guys are planning on living, but HERS Hardware, the owner, has a big house and this is uh, a chance if you guys want to, you know, basically it was two guys lived in each bedroom. Uh, I think it was, it was some crazy amount of money. It was like uh, $25 a week uh, to live there. 30 if you wanted to use the laundry and 35 if you wanted to oh no I'm sorry 30 was, was the kitchen use the kitchen and 35 if you wanted the kitchen and laundry so 35 bucks a week and obviously we were making 700 dollars a month you know after taxes I think it was 252 dollars every two weeks is right. whatever whatever it was wow. uh, so we were lucky that Mr. Her from hers hardware hooked us up with a nice deal you know I was going to say, our younger listeners are probably going, why don't you just go on Craigslist and find an apartment there? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So there, probably, there, were, there were no Craigslist. There were, there probably a little easier a little easier for, for kids coming up with the minors now in terms of at least finding a place to live. Are you Obviously, the team, does the team still help them with that kind of stuff? Well, or? yeah, I mean, you know, obviously the, uh, the game, the industry has changed quite a bit and, and guys get a little bit more assistance. But, again, these kids still are going away from home for the first time. They're away from their mom and dads and brothers and sisters. So the same challenges are still there. Right. As much as we want to try to support them. Uh, and the challenges financially are still there. Um, that's one thing that I, I think a lot of people don't understand is, you know, some of these guys – are lucky enough to get, you know, hefty signing bonuses. But the majority of guys don't get it. And the, the financial challenges are still there uh, today. So what we dealt with back in the day, the kids today being away from home for the first time, being away from your girlfriend, whatever the case may be, and the financial challenges along with it, that is all still uh, 
front and center for, for these, these young men today. Same year you played in the postseason, you were voted Red Sox Man of the Year uh, for your efforts with the adopt school program. How important was it for you as a player especially to give back to the community once you reached the big leagues? Oh, I was, uh, you know, I've been, uh, I've been fortunate. I have been uh, given a lot of opportunities in this game, and I thought it was important to always give something back. Um, early on, I worked with a bunch of different charities. Eventually started it's called Athletes Reaching Out. Um, it was basically an umbrella-type foundation that had a bunch of restricted funds within it. So if, if you wanted to be a part of my charity and you were a basketball player or if you were a football player, you could come in and have your own restricted funds. You could help us raise money, and you can also have a heavy voice in where you want dollars to be spent in the community. I personally built a Fenway Park on the, the, uh, the grounds that I played on as a kid. Um, it's kind of funny, moving forward, I, I, I hurt my arm, and I saw Jim Bowden, I want to say it was maybe at Bob Huggins' charity event, which was part of Athletes Reaching Out. Bob was the uh, University of Cincinnati basketball coach. Jim Bowden had showed up for the charity event, and he said, uh, hey, what are you doing next week? I want you to c come in and talk to me. I want to, I want to talk about next year. So I went in and met Jim Bowden, and he wanted me to sign a minor league contract and rehab my arm. And he said, by all-star break or so, he says, we'll get you healthy, and you're going to help our major league team. And I said, listen, my arm's shot. I've been, last year and a half, I've tried to rehab my arm. This is arm. Tommy John, right? Yeah, I had Tommy John. But the, the, it's strong and everything else, but I, I lost all the range of motion. There was a, a, a bone that actually chipped off the the ligament tore part of the bone off so they had to tack that in and when they tacked that in it, it scarred up pretty bad and I just don't have any range of motion left but I, I I told him I said I'm done rehabbing I think my playing days are over I'm not sure what I'm gonna do but um, I slid the contract back to him I said I'm not interested in signing a minor league deal and going through the rehab so then he started talking about the charity what, what was that charity about, you know? And, and he started asking questions, and I basically told him, that, you know, years ago I set up this, you know, 501c3, went through this and that, and this is how I thought it would work well, and this is what Huggins has done in inner city. This is what I've done over here. We start talking about the charity. And he takes the contract, and he slides it back to me. And he says, sign this minor league deal, I don't have I don't have a spot on my staff. I don't have finances to bring on another staff member. Sign this minor league deal. If you decide by spring training that you cannot play, he goes, I'll find something on the other side of the game. So when I look at it, if I didn't do the charitable work, I probably wouldn't be sitting here talking to you today. Because that that is the reason why I got a job on this side of the game was talking to Jim Bowden, him asking what was the charity event all about, what are, where do the dollars go, and him finding out that I'm the one that actually started the charity, he said, I'll find something for you to do on the other side of the game if you can't play. So my first year working in, on the other side of the game, if you will, was actually on a player contract for the Cincinnati Reds. So I guess I retired a Red. <laughs> but uh, that spring training, 
Uh, we had a, another scout that gets sick, that was um, dealing with some health issues. So I ended up scouting uh, three teams in, in, in Florida, Southwest Florida. And during the year, I started evaluating our system and then involved in some trades during the uh, deadline. And, you know, it's – and then about a year, year and a half later, I was you know, running the minor leagues for the Reds. So. so to that point, you had never thought about what you're going to do when you retire. You want to get into a scouting side or front office side. That had never been anything that even entered your mind? No, it, it really didn't. I mean, I, I had a bunch of people – you know, as we walked the path, there was a bunch of people said, you know, you, you could pretty much do whatever you wanted to do on this side of the game if you ever wanted to do that. I, I, I was probably going to be in a situation where I would have gone back to school, get my degree, and then uh, figure out what I was going to do on the business side. But, you know, I, you know, I thank Jim all the time. I mean, Jim gave me an opportunity to be on this side of the game. Um, the juices flow just like they do between the lines. You, you, you know, the competitive side of you comes out. Uh, I've been very lucky. I mean, I've, I've, I've worn a lot of different hats on this side. I mean, I, if I'd have done it again, I probably, I, I realized that probably the toughest job, I mean, obviously being a general manager is the top seat. We, we'll, let's just assume that we know that that's the toughest job. But I really believe the amateur scouts uh, have the, the, the biggest challenge because they're trying to figure out, you know, a 15, 16 year old kid. They're trying to project what kind of body they're going to have, what kind of baseball player they're going to have, how's he going to develop, you know, mentally, all these different things. It's a, it's a huge challenge. If I had to walk the path again, I, I probably would have spent some time doing the amateur because, you know, I had a chance to work in player development. I had a chance to put the uniform on, being a field coordinator. I had a chance to be the pro scout and now working, you know, in the front office with Brian Cashman's great, but I, I truly respect the uh, the amateur side of it because I think that is by far the the most challenging job that our industry uh, has. Um, trying to figure out what a young man is going to be five years from now or ten years from now when they don't even know what they're going to be five or ten years from now. It's a it's a challenging position, by and I, I probably would have. Uh, jumped into that arena just to make sure because I think that's that, that that that's a good foundation to build off of. Let's play a hypothetical game for a second. You were 30 years old when you finished playing. Right. Let's say your career had gone to 37, 38. You'd played 15, 16 years in the big leagues. Yeah. Do you think you would have wanted to get on the other side of the game at that point? Or do you think at that point you would have said, I had a nice playing career and I'm probably made a fair amount of money and I'm going to go enjoy my life? Yeah. You know, People ask me that all the time, but I don't know. It, it, it probably would have been a different path, uh, but you know, I I think somehow, some way, I'd, I'd have probably stayed in the game. You know, at that point, if you know you're able to, you know, make X amount of dollars and and give yourself a lot of freedom in regards to not having to jump into corporate America or whatever else. Um, it, the challenges, though, at that age would have been like 37, 38, 39. What am I going to do? You know, who's going to give me the opportunity to go scout? Or do I want to be away from home the amount of days that, you know, the job demands? You know, so who knows? You know, obviously the injury uh, was 
was hard to deal with, but it did. It, it, it started my uh, post-playing career a little quicker than I wanted. But, you know, like I said, Jim Bowden gave me a great opportunity. And uh, living in Cincinnati, working for the Reds, and then, you know, a year and a half, two years later, running the minor leagues and getting a feel for evaluating players, the business side of the game, all those type of things. And, and looking back, we were, you know, we were very successful because some of those kids that we had during that time ended up being part of the, the big, you know, the, the major league team. And, and that team was, uh, you know, playing well and we're in the postseason a couple of years. What was it like working for the team that you grew up for in your hometown and you know, I'm sure your family was thrilled. What was it like? I mean, you yeah, I mean, it, grow up watching the Reds, and now you're now you're working with them. Yeah, I mean, I, re- I remember speaking at quite a few uh, high school events, if you will. There was times when it was quite challenging when we had to have some sell-offs. Major league pieces were being moved in different directions for prospects, and people in Cincinnati were not real happy. And I went from being someone that was. You know, sitting with them at a restaurant to now speaking in front of the room, representing the Cincinnati Reds and basically dodging bullets that were being fired at me, you know, because what the Reds were were doing at the time. And I kept saying, be patient because some of these young individuals that we have in the minor leagues are going to be impact players that are going to help the, the Cincinnati Reds be a very competitive team. Obviously, when you look at Adam Dunn and all, the, the list is, is, is endless. I mean, it's, there's a ton, of the, a ton of guys that came through the system that were drafted and developed. Um, and, and, you know, some of them are still playing. Joey Votto's still one of the most premium hitters in, in baseball. So I mean, Joey Votto, Jay Bruce, Johnny Cueto, there were some really good players that oh, came yeah. through your system. How satisfying is it for you, especially as a guy running the minor league system, uh, to watch those guys develop and blossom into the stars that they became? Um, it, you know, first of all, those kids deserve all the credit in the world. We, I think we put those young men in a, in a position to succeed. I think we help them with their personal development, their professional development. Um, but, you know, when it's all said and done, you could have the best development staff in the world the key is getting the right players you know so the credit goes to the scouts Terry Reynolds and Casey McKee and all these guys that ran the drafts people that were out there the boots on the ground if you will that's where the, the credit should go because without signing the right players we can't do anything if we don't have the talent um, but yeah it's very satisfying I mean I'm, I'm very you know it feels good when I saw Adam Rosales two days ago come over and you know there's a hug there and and you know he makes a comment like I said dude you're still playing dude you've had a great career you guys I still remember that sit down talk and I you know I was thinking to myself I wonder what I said but, <laughs> but you know if you if you can help a guy become a little bit better person and a little bit better professional sure it feels good seven years with the Reds the new front office regime makes some major changes and all of a sudden you're without a job. With long history in Cincinnati, having been with the team for a long time, was there a bit of a shock when, when all that went down? Yeah, there was a shock. I mean, I I was uh, actually offered a, an extension on my contract uh, about three weeks earlier. And then I guess the decision was made by the people at the top that we were going to clean house. And, and they did that. They, they basically... 
I remember they let all our minor league coordinators go. Um, and I want to say that four of the coordinators went from the Cincinnati Reds right to the Atlanta Braves. They hired them in the same capacity. They put all the coordinators right in the same capacity with the Atlanta Braves. And the Atlanta Braves were on a tremendous run at that right. point. But, you know, Wayne Krivsky was running the team then. And uh, Wayne and I are friends to this day. We, uh, we talk, you know, about some of the decisions that he had to make. And I understand when you're the general manager and you want to bring in your own people, that's, you know, you're in the top seat. It's the way this game works. You know, we're going to go in a, quote, different direction. But, uh, you know, I was lucky because Billy Epler uh, was now with the Yankees. And uh, I had seen Billy over the years at the different farm director meetings and baseball winter meetings. And um, we had mutual friends and whatnot. And Billy called right away. He's like, what happened? And I'm like, you know, going in a different direction. He said, well, if you're interested, I've got uh, a pro scouting job available. Uh, I had never been, quote, unquote, a scout. But for years, that's what I did is evaluate spring trainings. I evaluated our own system. I wrote reports on all our guys. So, you know, on paper, it didn't look like the right move for Billy to bring me on as a scout. But uh, the one thing I have to give Billy Epler a lot of credit on is he always had a lot of different people in the room that wore different hats. We had field staff that were in the pro scouting world. We had amateur scouts that were now pro scouts. We had minor league coaches, um, former players right off the field because he wanted everybody to see a player through a different lens. And uh, he gave me an opportunity, and it was it was good. The first year I almost quit, though, because – we, we had another, another uh, scout that was dealing with some health issues. And I went from having, I want to say, 16 or 17 teams to like 28 teams to scout. That's all? 28. Why not the other one? So <laughs> I, I, I was just like amazed. I, I did the whole Southern League. I remember giving my wife a kiss and just saying, I'm out. Had the, uh, the bar in the back of the car with all the clothes hanging. And I just went for six weeks and scouted the, the Southern League, you know. And my first year, I didn't know, I didn't know any of these guys. And right. there was no history with the players. I'm trying – I'm literally starting from scratch. And uh, I remember sitting in Strawberry Plains, Tennessee, going, what am I doing with my life? This is crazy. This is absolutely crazy. And uh, I think at Thanksgiving I got my final report in that year. I'm like, if every year is like this, there's no way I can continue. But uh, the next year, I had a little lighter load, and it was a lot of major league stuff. And Billy was obviously an outstanding individual and gave me a great opportunity, and he was a pleasure to work with. So, But I didn't think I was going to make it through the first year. Well, it's a good thing for the Yankees you did. Brian Cashman has said you're among the best talent evaluators in the game. Did the scouting side of things come naturally to you, or is that something you have to – learn to some extent yeah I mean I, I I don't know I guess you know being lucky enough to be a player and then uh, wearing the hat of of someone in development getting to know players recognizing you know their deficiencies and what the plan is to make them better uh, and then 
swinging over to the scout side of it, I basically took the lens of a player development person. I'm watching their skills, figuring out, I mean, major leaguers all have talent. The ones that stay in the major leagues and produce have the ability to make adjustments. Day-to-day, pitch-to-pitch, whatever it is. So when I watch players, I basically try to figure out what, what area of deficiency do they have, can they make adjustments, and that's the way I evaluate. So I've been, I've been very lucky in, in regards to, you know, given an opportunity to, to watch the major league guys doing the National League for a number of years. Um, lucky to be a part of a Yankee organization that believes in forward thinking where I've learned a tremendous amount on the analytical side. You know, what do the numbers mean? You know, if, if, if I'm going to watch a particular player and, I, and say I'm lucky enough to see 16 games, you know, that's a very small percentage of what that particular individual is playing in 162 games. That's a small sample size. It's huge in the scouting world right. to see 16 games, but the analytical numbers, the statistics give you the full picture of what's going on when you're not in the ballpark. So being able to learn that type of stuff, being able to take myself out of the, the playing career, out of being a former player, out of being a development person, and trying to see the game through the analytical lens is, is very important. So, uh, you know, again, trying to figure out what the player is and projecting in the future. I mean, it's research and development. You're looking at the past. You're trying to figure out what he did in the past. You're trying to see what, what he looks like in the present. And most importantly, you're forecasting the future. So um, it's challenging at times. Somebody asked me one time, do you uh, root for the players that you, suggest, you know, suggested to Brian Cashman and the Yankees? I'm like, seriously, do I root for them? It's like day in and day out. It's like this guy is going to make or break my career. If this guy doesn't play well, I'm done. Right. You know? So, yes, yes, you, uh, you have a certain – those guys don't know it, but, you know, the scout knows it. And – you you know, you walk the path with them, and you, you're you're pulling for them and everything else. So, your second full season with the Yankees, they win the World Series. Yeah, what's it like being part of that ride? Getting you know, getting to be part of a championship club. Yeah, it was great. I mean, I I was lucky enough to be one of the advanced scouts uh, all the way through to I want to say it was the Dodgers in Philly was the uh, the National League pennant. I remember sitting in Philly and taking a verbal beating. You know, being a Yankee representative in the middle of the Philly fans. Philly fans can be tough. You really? Know, have you ever noticed that? I've never heard that before. <laughs> <laughs> but they're winners now. They don't. They you know, are. Now, they're, they, now they're getting spoiled. They had, they had a great ride this year, didn't they? Um, and they had just won the World Series the year before that, too. So, But they, apparently they, that, that wasn't enough for them. That's definitely not enough. <laughs> but uh, it, was, it was great. I mean, having a chance to uh, sit down with the Major League staff, going into a World Series – talking about the Philadelphia Phillies and, you know, what little bit of information we could pass on to, to see if we can get an edge. Uh, it was great. And I went home, actually, and uh, didn't go to a World Series game. My kid, my, my daughter was young, and she wasn't, she wasn't uh, feeling well, so I went home to see her, and I watched all the games on TV, and that was a, that was a great thing. I still remember they, they said they were going to send our uh, World Series rings out 
to our homes. And the FedEx guy, I kept missing him. You had to sign for it. You have to sign. (laughs) They weren't going to leave it on the step. Yeah, right. So this particular afternoon, I wrote on I wrote on the the, um, the note that he left. I'm like, please call this cell number. I'm in the neighborhood. I'll meet you. So FedEx guy calls me. I run up to the house, and he goes, uh, he goes, this must be a pretty important package. I go, that's kind of cool. I said, here, let me open it up. I, I, I had not seen it either, you know. So the FedEx guy actually put the ring on before I did. <laughs> he goes, this is a World Series ring. I said, yes, it is. Yes, it is. So it was, uh, it was fun. I mean, obviously, there's a ton of different people that are in the uh, industry right now that have never had an opportunity to win a World Series ring. Um, so 2009 was pretty special. So sort of ironic. Billy Epler is the one who brings you into the organization uh, back in 2007. And then when he leaves to take the Angels GM job, you inherit a lot of his responsibilities. Not the assistant GM title, you become the vice president of baseball operations. Yeah. What was the biggest change for you in taking on this new role? Well, I, I, I would say the probably the, the biggest is, you know, just being in the conversations about um, what we're going to do in regards to putting together that 25-man roster for the following year, the offseason went from being a relaxing time, a time that you, you, you know, you, you uh, charge the batteries to now the off season is as challenging as day-to-day in-season. Maybe because, busier. Because <laughs> you're trying to figure out, you know, where we're at with, you know, free agent trades, everything else. So um, Cash is great to work with. He, he tremendous commu- communicator, gives people an opportunity to work stays out of your way um, but you know the the, big, the biggest challenge now is probably you got to grab a bunch of information whereas in the past I gave the information that I believed in that I saw that I came up with now you have to grab everybody's information put it together and, and form an opinion for the Yankee organization so but again during the uh, the last few years the the rebuild that we went through uh, now seeing these young, young players play very, very well, and looks like you know the, the future is bright for us. So it's fun to be a part of. You've always been considered kind of an old school type of baseball guy. We all know analytics have emerged as a huge tool in the game. Uh, when did you start to learn them, pay attention to them, really take to them, and make them a part of kind of what you do? Yeah, I, I would say probably over the last five or six years is when we really um, started to hone in on. A different way to evaluate the player. I mean, obviously, some of it's been in the game forever. You know, it's statistical data that we have um, used. Now it's, you know, it's a different term or different definition. But, you know, Stick Michael said it best. I always wanted guys that walked. I wanted guys that controlled the zone, that were patient. You know, he was one of the first ones that identified it. Now it's like, big you know billy bean and the analytical world have have you know talked about it and written about it but you know we all that's where i was when i played i wanted to see pitches i wanted to work counts i wanted to figure out a way to get on base you know if it was a walk they wanted me to award me with a walk it's a walk is a walk and i'm on base so i was successful um but i i would say that you know 
the last five years is when I I think they're, you know, it, it's 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 gone analytical, you know, now the performance science type things are coming into play. So you have performance science and and the uh, biomechanical breakdown of a swing, for example, how that affects launch angles and exit velocities and and all these different types of things are all in play now. And, you know, it's 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 a living document. Every day changes, and if if you're closed-minded, you're not in the right industry because there's a lot of really interesting things going on. Before you and I met this morning, it was a performance science biomechanical breakdown of of, of some of the best swings in the game, and how the kinetic chain works. You know, how how it works. The five critical components of a uh, an efficient major league swing that does damage between the lines you know that's what we were doing this morning uh, and having guys like Reggie Jackson in the room talking about what he experienced back in the day and then having our current major league hitting coaches in the room and all different aspects different different paths different individuals uh, some of the analytical guys that you know ace the ACT and SAT you know not get a, not a, not get a question wrong they're in the room talking about their point of view and their lens. So it's fun times. And, 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 and quite honestly, it, it goes back to Brian Cashman because Cash put this together. And, you know, it, it's, it's forward thinking. It's the, it's the blend of the old school and new school. And somehow, someway, we're just trying to figure out a way to help our players become better players and help them uh, help us all try to win a World Series again. So many front offices around the majors now are populated by Ivy League graduates and numbers types. The only current GM that played in the big leagues is Jerry Depoto. Uh, why do you think it's skewed in that direction where fewer players have wanted to take the front office route? Uh, I don't know. I mean, it, the... Um, the finances of the game probably impact some of it, where guys play a certain amount of years and they make enough money where they can move on. Um, the influence of analytics and the way that the direction of, of the uh, the industry is going right now, obviously, if, if you're an owner of a team, you want to stay ahead of what the industry is doing you're probably more inclined to sit down and talk to someone that has a different background than that of a player. I understand that. Um, I get it. Uh, but there's also a lot of players that are open-minded to the fact that the game has changed and are intelligent enough to grasp the analytical side of it. So I, I, I do think that there's quite a few people that, that are out there that could probably sit in that top seat that are former players that have people skills that understand the, the importance of all different areas of, of our industry, not just analytics, but there's performance science. There's all these different components now that are, are in play. So, you know, I, I think there's going to be guys in the future that are former players that want to take on that challenge. Well, in your, your front office alone, in addition to you, you've got Kevin Reese, you've got uh, Danny Geis, you've got Matt Daly. There, 
the Yankees have brought in a bunch of, of players in Brian Cashman's front office. What is the biggest thing that a former player can lend to a front office that somebody who never played professionally can't? You know, I, I try to stay away from the, you know, hey, I was a player type conversations. Um, as a player, you realize how difficult the job is as a former player. You, it, it's not easy. You know, it's not easy to throw a ball, you know, over over the white thing down there consistently when the pressure of the third deck's there and everything else. It's not easy to hit 280, 300 with damage. It's not. I've, you know, we've walked that path. We understand the challenges that these young men have. Uh, so I think, you know, being a former player, yeah, that's that obviously uh, allows you um, there, there's times when I think the analytics, um, they understand all the numbers and they understand what, what, what the player is as far as black and white numbers. But the one thing about being a former player is you, you, you still recognize there's a heartbeat. These guys are people, you know. If we call someone in Scranton and say, tomorrow you got to get on a plane, and you're, next thing you know you're pitching in Oakland, that night, if you've never done that travel and then tried to perform, you don't realize how tough it is. But as a former player, you realize how tough it is. That's not an easy task. You're going to Oakland. You're called up to the big leagues. You just left your wife and baby in Scranton. Now, what am I going to do? Am I going to be back in Scranton in a week? Am I, am I moving out of that apartment and finding a place in New York? All the dynamics that go along with it. So being a former player, you do have an understanding of, that, that, that these people have heartbeat, heartbeats. And that, that, that's, I think, the, the biggest uh, plus, you know, having people in the front office that are, are players, former players. Uh, you know, it's, uh, you understand the challenges of, of the day-to-day -day activities of, of a major leaguer. So. You mentioned before you root for the guys that you recommend or, you know, that kind of thing. Cash once said, Didi Gregorius is here because I trusted Tim the most. What did you like most about Didi that made you think he could be the guy to succeed Derek Jeter at shortstop? Yeah, I mean, uh, and, and, and there was a bunch of us that liked Didi Gregorius. Um, I mean, there was just a lot of things that I loved watching when he was with Arizona. You know, the on the offensive side, I thought that there was – hand speed, there was raw power to the pull side. There were some things that I thought could be cleaned up with a swing, controlling his lower half, bad path. There was there was a lot of things that I thought had tremendous upside on the offensive side and defensively, you know, just loved the way, you know, the actions around the ball, the arm strength, all the different things. So, you know, anybody that was going to be coming into this organization following Jeter was going to have a very difficult time. There's no doubt about it. You know, if you probably you know, and obviously when, when Didi first started, there were some struggles there, you know. Um, but, again, it goes back to the player. The player came here. He made some adjustments. He learned how to play in New York. And he's, uh, he's off to a, a nice start with us, and, and he's having a nice professional career. So When the Yankees announced that Joe Girardi was not coming back, your name surfaced early as a potential candidate yeah. for the managerial job. Was that you that did that? No, no, I believe. <laughs> uh, I don't want to throw anybody under the bus, but I think it might have been Andrew Marchand. Uh, you quickly shut that down. 
uh, is that a job you'd ever want, or are you happier? Do you like the front office life better than what you perceive the managerial life would be? Well, I don't know. I mean, it's I, I took it as a compliment to even be written that I would be quote unquote a potential option, um, but. It would have been fun for I, the beat writers. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I personally would have I, – I, I think if I wanted to do that at the major league level, then I would have walked a different path than I've walked so far. You know, so, you know, the, the, the flexibility in my travel schedule now doing this job um, helps me see my 10- and 13-year-old kid and my wife. Um, you take on that job – you know, a little different situation. So um, I, I would have probably needed to walk a different path to, um, to take on, you know, that type of challenge. Um, but, you know, it is what it is. Most people in front office jobs are sort of aspiring to get to that big chair, the general manager's office. Right. Is that something you think about? No. Get asked it all the time. I don't want to be in that top chair. Don't need it. I've had my time in the sun as a player. Um, happy doing what I'm doing right now. You know, I'm not going to say it's not, you know, five years from now, maybe it changes. But I don't have any goal in mind to be in that top chair. Um, like I think me. a lot of people get in trouble in this game and, and probably in corporate America when they – they they have their their sights on a certain goal, and they don't live the present. You know they don't enjoy the path. I'm enjoying what I'm doing. So I, who knows, five years from now, I'm hoping I'm retired soon. You know? <laughs> uh, but when it's all said and done, I mean I, the challenges of of that top seat um, are are huge. So I'm happy doing what I'm doing right now. Who knows what's going to be in the future, but I don't have monstrous aspirations to, to sit in that one. Well, this podcast has moved you one closer, one hour closer to that retirement. <laughs> Tim Naring, Yankees Vice President of Baseball Operations, I really appreciate you taking the time. It was a lot of fun. All right. Many thanks to Tim Naring for taking the time to sit down for this week's episode of Executive Access. For our next episode, I'll sit down with Pirates Team President Frank Cooley. We'll discuss his time at the Commissioner's Office, his move to the Pirates, what it took to get Pittsburgh back to the postseason in 2013, and why he prefers the word retool over the word rebuild. If you missed last week's special oral history on the Justin Verlander trade, I'd highly recommend you check it out. You can search for Executive Access on Apple Podcasts, Part 19, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. So be sure to subscribe and enjoy these conversations all season long. If you like what you hear, leave us a review while you're at it. We always appreciate those. And be sure to spread the word and tell all the baseball fans in your life about Executive Access. Until next time, I'm Mark Feinstein. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. 
We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 